All right, well, let's jump into our study of Amos. Yeah, so in that 35 minutes of delay, I should have at least prayed and gotten us started, right? <laughs> so, Father, guide us this morning. Amen. Um, Amos, the book of Amos is what we're looking at today, all right? And as we continue our study of the 12, put ourselves in the proper perspective, get us a timeline going. And what we see here is Uzziah. 792 to 742, Jeroboam, 786 to 747, Assyria conquers Israel in what year? 722, all right. And so that's the time frame that we're looking at. That is um, the time periods and some of the key players, okay? Then we want to see where we're talking about geographically just to get ourselves situated. These are the places we'll be looking at. I'll bring this map up again a little bit later. So um, the area of Judah right here, all right, Tekoa. And Bethel, and then you have the surrounding nations, Philistines over here, and then starting on the southeast and going north, Edom, Moab, Ammon, up to Aram, working your way around the top, Tyre, coming back down, Israel, and Judah, of course. And so that is the area that we will be looking at. Amos in the New Testament. The primary passages that are listed in the New Testament that are quoting Amos are Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 15, okay? And that is from chapter 5 and 9 of Amos. However, that's not the only place that Amos is mentioned or alluded to or, or quoted from. So you can look at only specific quotations. That's one way of doing it. But as you dig into the Bible more and more and as you become more familiar with the Bible, you will learn that um, a specific quotation uh, is not the only time that a biblical author is using or referring to a prior biblical author. So they allude to them all the time. As a quick um, side note on that, uh, the Apostle Paul was saturated in the scriptures. So, he, I mean, he talked scripture like out of both sides of his mouth all day. Why? Because he grew up in it. He was taught it from the time he was a kid. Uh, he learned it, you know, in the, the Pharisee schools. He learned it in all these different ways. So uh, Paul doesn't need to say Genesis chapter and verse says so-and-so. Paul just says what it says. And if you know what's in the scriptures, you'll know he's quoting from Genesis. If you don't know anything about it, you won't know he's quoting from Genesis. Does that make sense? So, and he could just be a paraphrase, but he's referring back to it. So that's the way language works. That's the way people work. That's the way you and I work. We do it all the time. And that's also how the biblical <coughs> excuse me, authors work as well. So there is a bit of Amos mentioned throughout the scriptures as well. The title of the book comes from the name of the prophet in the book. Okay, The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, uh, two years before the earthquake. So as God promised Israel, so too Amos. God would be his support, and his name would be an ever-present reminder of that. And so I'm going to talk about his, his name um, on the next slide as well. But the point is that, that God is going to be the, the support for him. But for this side, we get the title of the book because of the guy who wrote the book, Amos, and the main character in the book. Um, traditionally, it's thought that his name meant burden or burden bearer. Um, if you check most... Uh, commentaries, that's probably what you're going to see. However, if you look at some of the newer ones, um, you will see that it um, probably has to do with being supported. Okay? 
Uh, there's little known of him, largely faceless, reflecting what John the Baptist said, I must decrease. So when we're studying, we're like, oh, man, I wish there was more information. Who was this guy? But in the, the context of him, our, our goal isn't to be made known. So if you think about it, his goal was to speak what God told him in the time God told him for the people that were there. Um, it really wasn't for us, so to speak, benefit, <coughs> because God saw fit to have him preach those, and he called him to stand as a preacher. But these writing prophets that we have in the scripture were not the only prophets of God. There's all kinds of other prophets. And we don't have anything about them in the scripture or know their names or anything, but that's okay. And that's something that you and I have to wrestle with ourselves. It's okay for us uh, not to leave a name behind when we die. I mean, we want to, right? We want a legacy. Isn't that what we're taught in America, right? Um, but really, I mean, there's seven and a half billion people on the planet right now. How many have already gone before us? How many will go after us? I mean, our name is just a, a drop in the ocean, right? So uh, I say all that simply to say, from a theological perspective, it's really no big deal. Because the scripture is inspired, and if you wrote this, and if God gave it to him, it's really no big deal that we don't know anything else about him. Okay, Jerushi argues that due to the passive participle form of his name, it means one who is carried or upheld by Yahweh. So as I was mentioning, traditionally, you check the commentaries, you check the handbooks, you check the survey books, what they're going to say is burden bearer, okay? Or it's burden. But um, Jerushi has argued, as have several other scholars who... Um, work in the chat deck, like regularly. And here is his additional support. In Isaiah 46, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me. Same usage. It's a, it's a passive uh, participle. So, it's not that he's bearing, it's that it's he's being born been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, related to the name of Messiah, which means Yahweh has carried protectively. So again, the other name, Messiah, the usage of the uh, similar root in Isaiah 46, 3 to 4, all indicate the idea that it's not so much that he is a um, burden or burden bearer, it's not so much the idea that he has a great burden to bear, but instead it's the idea that God is going to carry him. God is going to support him in his work. So Yahweh has carried protectively, all right, a mas to carry or to bear or uphold, and the last part, I-A-H, is a shortened form of Yahweh. Okay? So that's related to this word here, a Messiah. All right? You see, remember that uh, in the Hebrew, you don't have any what? No vowels, right? So it's consonants, okay? So you got A-M-S, okay? So A-M-S, and then you got this shortened form of Yah at the end. So Yah carries, Yah supports. And who's Yah? Yahweh, God, right? Does that all make sense? Y'all with me? All right. Excellent. So what else do we know about him? All right. We know that...
not advancing. I, I don't know what the problem is. Except it's. He is not a professional prophet, okay, if you look in 714, but he's a farmer. So he's not politically tied to the establishment. So when you look in 714 and, and uh, they try to tell him to stop you prophesying, and he's saying, hey, listen, I don't work for you. I work for God. Okay, God's the one that's giving me this revelation. So he's not so politically tied to the establishment, okay? Uh, in 1.1, we learn that he is a sheep breeder. Okay, it might say shepherd, depending on your translation. Um, he's probably accurately, more, more accurately, a sheep breeder, okay, so a breeder of sheep, also a herdsman of cattle, so probably both similarly related, so working with cattle and sheep, all right, he's also a cultivator of sycamore trees, um, sycamore trees is a tree that's related to the mulberry um, family, it's kind of a, a fig tree of, of sorts, but uh, they have to be bruised, you have to go uh, kind of cut them in order for them to properly develop. Each fruit must be scratched or pierced to let the juice flow out so that the fig can ripen. They need a lot of water, and they don't grow in the region of Tekoa. They do grow, however, in the Shepala in the Jordan Valley. So he was traveling to one of these locations, all right? Where he is, and Tekoa is 2,000 feet plus above sea level. They require you to be at 1,000 or less feet above sea level for these particular um, trees. was written between 790 and 755. All right. He was uh, familiar with Israel's actions during the Syro-Israelite Wars. He was also familiar with the deportation of the Israelites by the Philistines, the behavior of the Phoenicians, etc. So Amos is familiar with what's going on. He's familiar with the past history. He's familiar with what's going on with the neighboring regions. Some of that might be because um, of his, uh, his trade, because he's traveling for the trees. He's traveling probably with sheep and cattle breeding, etc. 
Some of it might be related to that. He's also familiar with the history of God's covenant people and with the covenant itself because he brings it up in many of his um, prophetic uh, uh, statements. So between 790 to 755, um, probably around 760 to 757 more specifically, is when this took place. We're told in verse 1 that it was during the reigns of Uzziah and Jeroboam II. And we're also told it was two years before the earthquake. Well, that would pinpoint it for us if we knew what earthquake it was, right? So we're like, what earthquake? I mean, we're talking thousands of years ago. Well, archaeologists have found evidence of a large earthquake during the mid-700s. Now, technically speaking, this would all be wrong, right? It might have been a different earthquake he's talking about. But, so that has fit in with, with what we know about it. And many, many scholars have subscribe to that idea that that is probably the time period. Zechariah 14.5 says, You will flee by my mountain valley, for the valley of the mountains will be ex- will extend to Azal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So we have another cross-reference here about earthquake in the time period of Uzziah. And so you piece that together, what archaeologists found, and that's how you come up with that, um, what we think. So Andrew Hill says the ministry time period may have only been a couple of years, just from 750 to 748. So one of the things we already know is as we look at the, the prophets, uh, it's sometimes difficult to determine exact time periods. Okay, We'll see this even more so with Obadiah. And there could be hundreds of years difference in, in what people think um, about when it actually took place. And also note that when it took place doesn't have to be the same as when it was written. Right? It could be written after the fact. Just like all, the whole Torah, right? I mean, Genesis didn't take, didn't, didn't take place when it was written. Moses wrote it most likely after the Exodus, right? Around 1450 B.C., give or take. Well, the events in Genesis aren't taking place in 1450 B.C. In fact, only the events at the very end of Genesis with the Joseph narrative is even close to that. The rest of them are many years prior to that, right? So, <clears throat> the world powers at the time, just as a quick refresher for you, um, are, are listed up here, and so as we're looking at a, a time period that is between 790 to 755, okay, mid-700s, right? And so we are prior to pretty much everything on the screen, which means we're to the left. So um, Assyrian Empire is the only one really with some influence um, back in there. got the, the kingdoms of God, Israel, the north, the south, Judah, and you can see uh, with two, two of the maps, one you can see the, the geographical boundaries for Israel and Judah over here on the right, and then the other chart is you can see who some of the prophets were and how they're lined up here. So we're looking at Amos this week. We've already looked at um, Hosea. And so that would have been Jeroboam II. Now remember, that's just the king of the north. The south kings are not up here for you. But we've already been told from Amos 1.1 that it's Uzziah. Okay? So during the same time period of Amos and uh, Hosea, coming after, all right, and this is a little bit helpful for us to understand, that this is coming after the time period of Elijah and Elisha. So on the prophetic timeline, 
after Elijah and Elisha, you get Amos and Hosea. All right? So they, they come in uh, decrying the, the things that are, that are going on with God's people. So what's, what's going on in this time period anyways? What's the occasion for it? Well, it's a time of great uh, prosperity, all right, and ease and peace. Peace, prosperity, and prestige. That's what House says in the book on page 238. Um, the military success of Jeroboam II had made the ministry for Cusick's warnings of impending doom seriously. After all, things are going great. What do we got to worry about? Why should they be persuaded by the ravings of this prophet? They were strong. They had a few worries. The people were proud and at ease, chapter 6, verse 1. So his talk of death and exile and the end of Israel seemed out of touch. So it's like everything is going great. And then you had those naysayers back in uh, 2007 saying the market's about to crash. No, it's not. I mean, everything's great. Like, look at the, the market for houses. It's at the peak. And what <laughs> happened in 2008? It busted. Right? Now, there were people that were saying that was going to happen. There always are, right? And so... That's kind of what's going on here, except at a, a much uh, more important level. So, though he is from the south, Amos prophesied to the north prior to their captivity to Assyria. Assyria is going to begin to move toward Israel with the rise of Tiglath-Pileser III. So, at this time period, the, one of the reasons that they were able to uh, have such um, prosperity is they haven't been bothered during this time period leading up to this time period, by Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, etc. So that's about to change. Assyria is on the rise. And Assyria is going to be knocking on their door soon. But the biblical records of the reigns of Uzziah and Jeroboam II, Chronicles 17.14 and 2 Chronicles 26. <coughs> Both kings brought stability uh, politically and prosperity economically to their kingdom. Both kings also expanded their territorial borders by means of successful mili military campaigns. So Uzziah fortified the walls and the towers of Jerusalem. He built other defense outposts throughout Judah. His policies also increased agricultural productivity. In addition, he assembled a well-equipped army that enabled Judah to subdue the Philistines, the Arabs, and the Ammonites. So those neighboring um, countries, they're able to subdue them as well. Um, he regarded uh, Amos regarded a righteous king, although regarded a righteous king by the biblical historians, Uzziah was stricken with, with uh, leprosy, if you remember that, and that was God's judgment against his pride that plagued him until his death. And so you do see a aspect even with the prohibitions in Scripture where they often um, don't end quite so well, or they have a moment in their life where things didn't go should have gone for them. So continuing to look at the historical context, I got a couple of maps up here for you. Two different ones. And so when we're looking at the, the prophets, and we see the, the map over on the right side, all right, this is uh, Israel and Judah in the days of Jeroboam and Uzziah. And so Judah's in the purple, Israel's green, and then Aram is up there in the, the yellowish area. So 
uh, Rehoboam, not Rehoboam, I'm sorry, Jeroboam II, okay, in the north, okay, so he's the leader in the north of Israel, right? He's able to recapture this whole section of land up here during this time period. So you know that when you recapture land, there's some responsibilities, obviously, that come with that, but it also is revenue uh, bearing. So you're taxing the people, they're paying tribute, etc. So that would also supply some of his, his income there as well. You also understand that when you look at the north and the south, and if I'm not mistaken, this is similar to the Civil War here in America, uh, the north was uh, more prosperous, right? Isn't that how it was here too? And so this, the same thing occurs uh, here, which will cause some, some element of conflict with, with Judah in time to come. Um, with that being said... <coughs> The, the map on the left is from, this is a new um, atlas that I picked up recently, the Satellite Bible Atlas. I think New Orleans uses it as their textbook for their backgrounds class. But <coughs> if you look on here and we can see the different nations that we're going to deal with in the book of Amos. Okay, so they're, they're on both of these maps, Edom, Moab, Ammon. Okay, um, Tyre's up here, the Philistines here. And let's see, so Tekoa is right here. So it's just a little bit below uh, Jerusalem. Look at that. Looking at some of the themes in the book of Amos. Amos is the first prophet to address the, the theme of the day of the Lord. Now we've already talked about the day of the Lord. But you remember that the, the prophets are, are mostly in chronological order, but a couple of them are out of order, right? So Amos is actually one of the early ones. And uh, you can see here, thus says the Lord, okay, that's the messenger form. It occurs 44 times. I know your transgressions or sins is 12 times. Um, many are your sins eight times in the, in the book of Amos. So what is God going to do? Well, God will not revoke his punishment on these nations, nor on his people, Israel and Judah. And we're going to see that in the, in the very first chapters. So, but there is hope at the end. All right, we'll see that at the, the very end of the, the book as well. We're also going to see the themes of uh, God's sovereignty, of course, are going to play out in the book. <coughs> the indictments in the book, okay? call to a summons to the court because you have a charge against you accusations sentences um, the day of the Lord ten times instructions uh, results of punishment comfort and his, the history of Israel there's a number of verses that deal with these aspects in here um, I forget off the top of my head what blog I picked this up off from but it's on the PowerPoint so uh, I didn't create this slide there's about six in here that um I found that somebody had put together, so that would have taken me another 50 hours. So anyway, um, if I find something good, I pick it up, and uh, the reference is usually in the notes section on the PowerPoint. So when you look at the book of Amos, okay, and you look at uh, how it is structured, okay, and we've looked a little bit at the genres of the prophets and oracles, all right, and there's different types of oracles, but these words of God, you look at this book, and what do you find? Half the book almost is what? Oracles. Okay? 
And then the next section, next largest section is visions. And then pronouncements. And moving on down uh, from there. A little bit of lament in there, verdicts, etc. So God's speaking. God has a word to say uh, to his people. God has something that he um, wants done. Oracles, which was the largest one on the previous uh, pie chart. The types of oracles here. There's oracles against Israel, the nations, woe oracles, and oracles of restoration. And what, what you can see in this chart, which we're going to talk about when we get into the text, you know, the text starts out with these uh, judgments and oracles against all these other nations. So Israel's like, yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. Beat them down, beat them down. If you look at the the text, how many verses of the text are relegated to Israel's indictment versus the other nations? And as you can see on this chart here, um, this is by the number of verses: thirty-four verses against Israel, seventeen against the other nations. Okay, but the point of the book is not to judge all these other nations. The point of the book is you. I mean, they are going to get judged too. But you know, God's covenant uh, people are the ones that are in trouble in this particular uh, case. So, only six out of the 71 verses in Amos are devoted to uh, comfort or reassurance. He might have five on the previous slide. But that's not very much. So it looks like a doom and gloom book. Um, and Amos is, is a lot of, of harsh words directed towards God's people. And we often think, well, it's not us. I didn't do it. Let me make a quick comment on this. You'll find in scriptures that there's often times, as there did this, that um, there is a confession of the whole nation by a single person. And so Ezra realizes The I didn't do it, um, you know, isn't going to quite cut it. <coughs> also, the literary features. 
what do you notice in the top right corner? Yeah, what kind of cow? The fat cow, right? Because Amos 4.1 says you fat cows of Bashan. Right? So, why? Well, we'll get into why they were so fat in a little bit, but the literary features of the book is the point of this chart. So, they weren't literally cows. Alright? So, these are metaphors, figures of speech, um, analogies, idioms, and similes are used uh, throughout the book. Uh, this should not surprise you. You already know about the figurative language. You know about the metaphors. You know that the prophets are, are pretty big on, on using this. And so, as well. In particular, Amos makes extensive use of the metaphor uh, where one thing stands in for another. So, <coughs> I don't think I have to explain this, but I will just in case. Like, uh, If I say I'm a pig, well, I don't really mean I'm a pig, right? I mean, it means I eat a lot, like pigs do. Right? Like, if you look at, if you throw food at the, in the pig trough, what do they do? I mean, they're just gobbling it down. Like, they're pigs, right? That's how they act. I don't, I don't know why. God made them that way, I guess. But maybe um, there was a sin effect in them, too. I don't know. But anyways, um, the metaphor is effective because it packs a lot of punch into just a few words. In a very short sentence, I cause you to associate in your mind my food consumption with the image of a pig gobbling up food. So instead of spending a long time explaining how much I eat, therefore diluting the effect, using metaphors lets me get right to the point and make the point dramatically. So, that's very helpful. Again, this is, this is taken from the, the same blog that made the other uh, charts. <coughs> and then this is the, the next one that uh, I picked up from him as well. The rhetorical features um, in Amos. And so here, you can see also that as you're looking through the, the book, the ascending numbers, for even for three, no, for four, seven plus one feature that we'll talk about in a little bit. Comparisons. Uh, merisms are where the parts stand for the whole. I say my leg, but I mean my whole thing. So why do your legs run to destruction? Okay? It's, it's not like my legs just left my body and, and ran and got hit by a car. It's, no, my legs just carry me. Are running. Running is like the way of life, a metaphor for, for how you live your life. Um, you're running to destruction. So a way of destruction. Puns, rhetorical questions, and different sequences, one, two, three, four, etc. So these are all things that you pick up in uh, the book of Amos that he uses to, uh, to pack a punch, to, to make his point. The themes of justice, true faith or religion, uh, and day of the Lord are very important in, in the book. structure. There's 49 divine speech formulas in Amos. These formulas occur in such a way that there are 7 or in one case 14 of them in each major section of the book. The distribution of the formulas is too close to the natural divisions of the book to be coincidental. Why they have been so distributed is a matter of conjecture. But maybe the distribution is explained on the basis of 7 as an indicator of completeness Certifying each section of the book as well as the book as a whole as a word from the Lord. That's uh, James Lindbergh being quoted in um, Winland. Um, it's not W. Winland. It's E. Ernst Winland, actually, in his work. Um, Winland is a, uh, a linguist. He does a lot of uh, textual analysis with the scriptures, um, with uh, 
Stubborn Institute of Linguistics, which is kind of an arm of the Bible Institute. They deal specifically in uh, linguistics and language and uh, translation, uh, mostly related to Bible translation projects. So, um, if you're, um, you might get in over your head real fast, <laughs> but uh, if you're interested in like serious like nitty gritty language literature analysis, the Bible type stuff, the guys at SIL, Summer Institute of Linguistics, and uh, Text Linguistics are are people that really wrestle with this stuff, including the structure of the book, etc. Because they really want to know how it's put together and what it means so that it can be properly translated into another language. So if we don't understand it for us, how, how are we going to put it into their language where there's so many variables that's messing it up? So anyways, this is the, the structure um, of the book. Now with that, continues. Says the book is a masterpiece of rhetorical skill that is carefully and effectively structured. One of the book's most striking structural features is the prolific use of the sevenfold structure. Um, Lindbergh notes eleven sevenfold groupings of English, uh, to which I have added twelve more. I not being me. That's that's uh, David Dorsey. Okay. So hopefully on the PowerPoint he's in your notes field. I probably should have put it up there if it's recorded. Um, but that's Dorsey in his book. Um, forget the title of the book, but he goes through the whole Old Testament uh, in, in just a couple pages to give you the structure, the outline, the theme, and the main points of, of the whole book. Excellent little book. Highly recommend it. <coughs> and so, moving right along to the, the structure following uh, Jerushi's outline here, which will, I'll give you another one just for uh, teaching or preaching purposes, um, maybe, but the superscription, verse 1, then the indictment against Israel, followed by the case against Israel, the sentence against Israel, and then the epilogue. Okay, so basically you, you've got uh, four four main parts, you know, super, giving you some main information. Um, and then the, the rest of the book goes from there. This is probably the, the most uh, thorough chart I was able to find that, uh, that breaks it down for us. And so this, if you um, are maybe able to, to keep that uh, somewhere, as we keep coming back to sections, it might be helpful for you. But you can see here, as we looked at the, the, the prosecution of the nations, okay, the judgment on the nations here, that uh, Damascus, uh, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Judah, and Israel, okay? All of these pronouncements, all right, are, are listed in this first section, chapter 1 through 2.16. So there's, there's pretty wide agreement that the first section ends at 2.16. Um, and the next one picks up at 3.1 and goes to 6.14. And then 7.1 to 9.10. And then 9.11 to 15 is the hope at the end of the book, is, is that there's this promise. Remember, when God judges, okay, uh, once the judgment is meted out, uh, it's kind of like once you discipline your kid, um, now you move on to the love, to the hope. Um, we took care of the issue, right? So discipline in the Bible, by the way, is a form of correction, of education, actually. It's a 
multiple very interesting uh, studies in itself, but uh, it's a way that God is educating his children, trying to train them up um, in the way that they should go. The words of Amos here, and the messenger formula. The Lord roars from Zion. Well, this is verse 2 still, sorry. Um, and raises his voice in Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the summit of Carmel withers. Um, the issue is that we pick up with a piece from Joel, from Joel 3.16, which says the Lord will roar from Zion and raise his voice from Jerusalem. So it's no accident, I don't think, that these are connected like this. Um, particularly... When you look at the order of the books in the scriptures, right? So it's uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos. So Joel in chapter 3 uh, has the Lord roaring, and you pick up the next book, and it starts out with what? The Lord's roaring. It's not accidental. Okay? So this goes back to what Paul House introduced you to the idea that the 12 are the 12. It's one, it's all 12 on the scroll.
actually went back and looked at the lyrics of it. But it's talking about something different. So his, his uh, song, Daniel Vasquez, is about you know God working to live in you and, and being a powerhouse for you or whatever. Um, this is God being a powerhouse in judgment um, on the nations and his own people. So here you have the idea of, I don't know what movie I saw it in, but it was somewhere, I don't know. But this is the idea of the king of the jungle lying with the loudest roar, and I mean everybody is just blown away by it. Okay, that's what we're talking here. God is coming in um, in his judgment scene. So each of the nations has committed atrocities that require the righteous God to judge them. And so that that is what is happening when we're talking about this lion roaring. So I say that for two reasons. One, to understand the context. And two, that we, when we read the scriptures, have, have got to separate ourselves from our cultural context sometimes. Because when you say roaring like a lion, the first thing that comes to my mind is that song. Okay? Like, I've already connected to it, but it's a wrong connection. It's not what it's about. So, we got to be able to do that. So now, I'm sorry, we get to, to verse 3. I jumped the gun earlier, um, mentioning the messenger formula. 3, it's the Lord says. Like, that's the formula. Like, God says, and he sends his messenger out. So, Lord says, that's called the messenger formula. I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four, because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. So, Yahweh says, okay, the Lord says, occurs at 1 3, 1 1 9, 1 11, 1 13, and then 2 1 2 4 2 6. So that's, that's your messenger formulas. They generally indicate the start of a new section, something new, okay? So if you were to go back and compare those, what you would find is that those are probably at the beginning of each of those units, all right, that deal with the nations. We looked at the, your Bible, if it's open. <coughs> One three, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus. One six, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza. One nine, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Tyre. Verse 11, Edom. Verse 13, Ammonites. 2 1, Moab. 2 4, Judah. 2 6, Israel. Alright? So there they are. Each of them laid out, okay? The messenger formula. Eight nations to be judged. That's to be judged, not judges. Um, six of which are pagan. All right, so you see two two patterns here that show up. All right, you see a three plus one pattern. Okay, for three things, even for four. And then there's also a seven plus one pattern. All right. Um, the three plus one simply means sin upon sin. All right. It's not saying the fourth is the worst. It's not saying the fourth is the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, it's saying sin upon sin. You're in your continuous sin. And that's what they're saying when they list off these, these sins. But three crimes, even four. In fact, did they even tell you what the crimes were? Only the last one. They threshed Gilead with iron sledges, right? I mean, did they list four different crimes here? No. All right. Now, the 7 plus 1 pattern, well, what's the 7 plus 1 pattern? The 7 plus 1 pattern is how 
it starts with the six pagan nations, and then it hits Judah, that's seven. And so, who's this message to? Israel, the northern kingdom, right? So I know that um, it gets confusing when we study the Bible with our, with our timelines, because uh, we've already looked at where Israel's fallen and Judah's fallen, right? I mean, we've already done Daniel, he's in exile. <laughs> well, now we've backed up. Okay, we're, we're before the exile now again. And before the exile, if you have your, your, your picture of the map again, <coughs> let me see if I can quickly put the map up here. Yes. Uh, what order? The, uh, the minor prophets? Yeah. Yes. Yep. All right. So, if you were to look at, I'm gonna go all the way back to our beginning one. So, if you were to look at the map here on the board, and you you follow with me again, or you could also go to the chart that listed the, the chapter and verses, um, but. Damascus is in Syria or Aram, okay? And then uh, Gaza, right? So you've got Syria or Aram, then Gaza, and then you've got uh, Tyre, and then you've got Edom. So it's, it's here to here, here to here, okay? And then Ammonites, and then Moab, and then... Judah, and then lastly, but not least, the bullseye. So it's like we're circling around, right? We did, we did the outer ring, we did the inner ring, and now, boom, Israel, you're it, all right? And that's, that's kind of what's going on here. And so seven is the number of completion. And so if you're Israel and you're hearing this, you know, you're thinking, oh, six pagan nations, oh, yeah, and then Judah. what's going on um, right there. Does that make sense to everybody? Alright. And that's the same thing that um, this chart would show you as well. If you were to look, so you want to know where, where were all those um, the Lord says phrases, well, it's going to be 1, 3, 1, 6, 1, 9, 1, 11, 1, 13, 2, 1, 2, 4, 2, 2. Okay, right off that chart. All right, so continuing on, though, where we left off with the messenger formulas. And then God says also, he says, I will not relent. Okay, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three times, even four. What does he mean there? There's no undoing this. There's, there's no undoing this, okay? It's going to happen, is what, he, what he's saying there. So this is like a done deal, okay? Damascus, okay? What do we know about Damascus? Well, Damascus is, is up there in uh, Syria, Aram area, right? That's going to be where Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus, right, in the New Testament, when he was blinded by the light, right? Struck down and 
got saved. Damascus, located in modern-day Syria, is one of the oldest continually inhabited cities in the world. Throughout biblical history, Damascus often comes in contact with conflict with Israel because of the city's strategic position along the two trade routes. In Genesis, when Abram goes to war to rescue his nephew Lot, he pursues Lot's captives to the area north of the city, Genesis 14.15. Later, King David conquers Damascus after the city's warriors help his enemies. David places garrisons within the city, forcing the inhabitants to pay tribute. The remnants of the army that David had defeated later reclaimed Damascus. This occurs during King Solomon's reign, making Damascus Israel's adversary once again. Damascus then goes through several wars, again finding itself under the control of Israel, Aram, and other kingdoms throughout the years. Approximately 100 years after Damascus is recaptured from King Solomon, God sends Elijah into the desert that surrounds the city. There, Elijah meets Elisha, his successor, and appoints a new king over Aram and Israel. And about 40 or 50 years later, the prophet Amos now is foretelling the overthrow of Damascus and the captivity of its people. This is fulfilled when the Syrians capture Damascus in 732 B.C., which is about 10 years before Israel is captured. Which should have been a red flag, right? It's uh, prophesied, and then they start crumbling. But you should remember what Amos said. Uh, during New Testament times, Damascus was part of the province of Syria and the Decapolis, ten cities of the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire. After a long tradition of Greek and later Roman influence, the city has a tiny Jewish population. Nevertheless, Damascus is still important to the development of uh, Christianity. And then, as I already mentioned to you about the Apostle Paul, being on the road to Damascus. So, Damascus was an important place. Now, as God makes his rounds through there, okay? The indictment to Israel. We've already mentioned this once, but the bridge from, from Joel, that, that God is going to roar out and raise his voice in Jerusalem. And there will be a, a melting. The summit of Car- Carmel is a huge mountain, okay? That should be nothing when, when God roars. Okay, the mountains are going to break apart and fall apart. So, <coughs> he moves from there. We look at these different indictments that we find in Amos, all right? And so, what is it that God is indicting, suing the people for, calling them to court for? Okay? You look at some of the big chunks here. Oppression and exploitation. Okay? Violations of natural law. Injustice. Okay? Ignoring what God has done. Idolatry. Breach of treaty. Disingenuous worship. Failure to repent. All these things that are breaking the covenant. That are are breaking what God has um, called his people to do. The most common indictment, though, is oppression and exploitation. Again and again, the message Amos carried calls out Israel as an exploitative society, one in which the wealthy and powerful take advantage of others for their own gratification. So that is what God's, what God's beef is. <clears throat> so if you look at all of the different nations that God is going to judge, okay, so on this chart, and here again, you'll see, here's your messenger formula broken down across all of them. They all start with what? Thus says the Lord in King James, right? Um, I think the ESV actually still says that, doesn't it? Thus says? I, I found that funny, but I noticed it this week when I was looking at, I think, Amos. 
Um, then you have that formula, okay, for three transgressions and for four, for three plus one, listed, all right? Then you have the judgment, okay? I will not revoke the punishment. Look at right across the thing. It's like just copy and paste, right? Then the indictment of the particular sins, okay? So each one has at least one thing listed, all right? But again, it's not just the, the, the uh, it's not a bunch of camel's back, okay? It's a continuous sin of which this demonstrates the, uh, the fierceness of their disobedience. Then the identification of the judgment, what he's going to do, well, what's it say? I'll send fire, 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 right? Call the firefighters. Um, and then the concluding messenger formula, okay? which is not on every one of them, okay? There, there is a semblance of a pattern um, of some sorts here, but um, it ends with, says the Lord, on uh, five out of the eight, okay? Now, Amos's rhetoric is pointed and crafty, all right? He notes the seven nations surrounding the northern kingdom upon whom Yahweh will bring judgment. He begins at the outskirts, like I showed you on the map, but then addresses the distant cousins also, and then the climactic slot, Judah and Israel, as is unexpected. So, what is the, the ground for the judgment? What is the of breaking the, the covenant. And so the day of Yahweh is approaching and a drought, either metaphorical or literal, is coming. Here the first divine comment is not a reasoned argument, but a blood-curdling lion's roar, which withers all vegetation from lowland pasture to Mount Carmel peak. What we said that in the ground of an illustrated by Babylon Sanitary. So there's, there's no element of comfort and peace here. It's it's a roar that shatters and breaks. on the map for you. This is from Stephen Miller's um, book on the survey in the Bible. So again, you've got them scattered all around, and here's what the judgment is going to be. Edom, cities will be destroyed. Moab, you'll die in a great noise. Ammon, your leaders will be taken captive. Aram, you'll be taken captive. Phoenicia, capital will burn. Philistia, last of the Philistines will die. Jerusalem, destroyed. So you already know from the rest of our, our history, that some of these, at least you know, took place. Right? And you can guess, the others also did this. So, these, these take place um, as well, just like God said they would. And that's just a uh, taking off the, the judgments and, and letting you see again the whole area, basically. So the entire Palestinian area, land of Canaan, all falls under God's judgment. 
right? So then, what is the grounds for this, this judgment, if we break this down um, a little further? Pretty much the summary on the right column for every one of these, okay? You, you can look at what they all say, everything from threshing Gilead to Moab, burned the lion bones of the kings to rejected the law, and pretty much it's about abusing enemies and failing to love your neighbor. Okay? Failure to love your neighbor. What did Jesus say was the two most important things? Love God and love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? Everybody's your neighbor. And so that's the bottom line. And, and that's why this book is so relevant to us. God holds the first seven nations accountable in accordance with what they've been given. With Judah alone being judged according to breaking the law. Why? Do the other nations have the law? Actually, they don't. It's a covenant law between God and his people, right? So, um, strikingly, the northern kingdom of Israel is treated more like the foreign nations that never received God's law as an even greater abomination. Basically, God's people, Israel, have become like the pagan nations. They've become a pagan nation. So, how does God treat them? Pretty much like a pagan nation. So, in the second unit, which starts in, in chapter 3, alright? So, remember, up to chapter 2, verse 16, it's the judgment against all of these nations and what they have done. Alright? Basically, most of them are abusive and oppressive. Alright? They do not demonstrate love or the love of God. They are um, not followers of, of God's laws. And, in particular, God's own people are covenant law breakers. So, you can expect judgment that's going to follow. Right. So, in chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 14, we have the, the second main section. Okay? Um, the oracles of chapters 1 through uh, 2 finished with uh, Yahweh's declaration. Alright? And then in 3.1, the typical introduction to a new prophetic message. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, Israelites, against the entire clan that I brought from the land of Egypt. So there's a shift in focus from guilt to judgment with a new format using rhetorical questions. Okay? So see that when you look at the book um, and you start reading through uh, the text. I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. And then, can two walk together without agreeing to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion growl from its lair unless it gets captured something? Does a bird this, is this, this, indeed, does that, right? So, rhetorical questions um, asked to them. <coughs> so, the case against Israel. A poor prophet from the south goes to the prosperous north to decry its sins. Israel's pride is repulsive. So as, as God goes to them, Amos begins here, not by using the messenger formula that he used in 1 through 2.16, but instead by speaking in the, name, in the manner of a teacher of the law. To be sure, he does not uh, proclaim his own legal wisdom, but in the first-person style of the messenger speech, he announces the established verdict of God. He has spoken. 
is used by Amos when the act of Yahweh speaking is um, such importance in like chapter 3, verse 8. In contrast, the very frequently employed has said in introductory and concluding formulas. A strong accent is here placed on the act of Yahweh speaking because the passage functions to introduce a collection of oracles. And so in this section now, uh, he's going to delineate the case against Israel. And the, the first thing is going to be that their pride is repulsive to him. And also, their protection is rickety, what they're relying upon, okay, is it, not good. It's not going to hold them up. And their pride is revealing, all right? Obviously, I tried to alliterate those. So these three aspects are, are what is the concern of this chapter, chapter 3 to chapter 6. The lion has roared. Who is not going to fear? Right? You, you, hear, you hear the lion's roar. Well, you, you need to respond. You need to do something related to that, right? So what is that going to be? What's that going to look like? Israel's um, the pride in their uh, injustice and oppression. Right. So a chiastic structure for Amos 5, 1 to 17. What do you notice right in the middle of it? The Lord is his name. Well, who cares? What does that mean? Alright. What, what does God want all through the scripture for his name to be known, right? But what does it mean to, to know the name of God? Well, there's a few things, right? First off, it's relational, okay? But on top of that, there's something more to it. Um, God has a character. And God's character is to be known as well. And his people are supposed to be representing his character. So his people are supposed to be revealing who he is by how they live and talk and walk and, and treat people. So... There's a lament on the outside portions of this chiasm. And then there's the seeking God to live. In other words, repent. Okay? Come back to me. A warning to sinners. The power of God to create, and then the Lord is his name in this middle section. Chapter 5, right in there in verse number 8. In the latter portion, okay, of this section, okay, in chapter 5, verse uh, 18 um, in particular, and then in verse 20, we have the idea of the day of the Lord that comes back up. Now, we've touched on the day of the Lord several times, and here we will bring it up in this portion of our class today and also when we get to Obadiah, because if you look on the chart on the screen, this is from the ESV Study Bible. Um, it's in Obadiah chapter 15. Uh, shows up as well. This is the earliest known use of the prophet's expression, the day of the Lord. Okay, It also occurs elsewhere, uh, but this is the earliest. Perhaps in Amos' day, the term was in popular use for the time when the Lord would intervene and put Israel at the head of the nation. But Amos and all the prophets after him clarify what it would mean for the Lord to visit his people. It means judgment if they are unfaithful. 
to Amos, the turn points forward to the coming judgment on the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians. And Zephaniah points to the coming judgment on Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. Other prophets use the term to signal God's forthcoming judgment or punishment of other nations for their brutality, Babylon, Egypt, Edom, and many nations, and, and Joel and Obadiah. In some cases, the prophet uses the term to denote something far further off in the future, Malachi 4 and uh, Joel. All of this indicates that the day is not unique, but may be repeated as circumstances call for. Remember also, I think, was it last week? We also delineated between um, the plural and the singular use of the day of the Lord, right? And so there's the day, and then we're in, like, the last days. Remember I, last week, was it, we talked about that? Yeah. Okay, so there's that aspect of there's this future day coming still, um, but there's also a day that God is going to visit you. So the day of the Lord here is a day where God is going to visit you for the iniquity of your sins. So, this brings us kind of to the, to the heart of the, of the book. The, this idea of justice. As we look at the, the challenge that God has for his people here, he challenges them to repent. He challenges them that they would seek his face. And their lack of, of justice is resulting in this retribution um, from God. And so I want to spend um, a little bit of time today uh, unpacking some of the aspects of justice and why this is a big deal or why this is important. So Q&A Padilla says, the practice of justice is at the center of God's purpose for human life. It is so closely related to the worship of the living God as the only true God that no act of worship is acceptable to him unless it is accompanied by the concrete act of justice on a human level. Abraham Heschel, who um, is well known as, you know, as an early writer on like prophetic material in the scriptures, has said, this is not an inference, but an a priori of biblical faith. In other words, there is no biblical faith think you can follow God and not have justice in your life, you're deceiving yourself. Now that right there, um, not only will that preach, but that needs to be preached. Um, this goes well beyond easy believism or to say a sinner's prayer or, or anything. This is way beyond that. This is, this is saying that the heart, the heartbeat of what's going on is an aspect of, of justice. Um, now, I don't even want to get into the current debate between the new perspectives on Paul and justification and all that going on with um, uh, Piper, MacArthur, N.T. Wright, and a host of other people. Uh, but that, to some degree, probably would play into this conversation also because it's related to uh, justification, which is, to some degree, So let's d define some terms here, okay? We've talked about some of these before, all right? So justice, the mishpat, okay? Or um, in the Greek is the, the other phrase there. Putting things right, okay? 
putting things right. It's doing. My parentheses is doing. I just mean it's action-based. It's you're doing something. You're putting it right. Um, you're not just talking about it or writing about it. You're doing it. The judges judged Israel by putting things right. Why were they called judges? what right? Well, they used the military. They wanted to fix things that way. Religiously and legally, all different aspects of society. Samuel was kind of the model of all three. Remember, he was prosecuting some stuff, right? Um, justice can refer to the process, the end result, or any portion thereof. So we're dealing with the whole aspect, alright? It's all encompassing. Mishpat is what needs to be done in any given So we we have a problem in our um, it's not just us, it's everybody's always 
behind the staff, you know? Like, you don't see them. So that's why. Do you remember the, um, the cover of the Time Magazine article for issue uh, a couple years ago? It was a, a little kid, and it was a vulture blocking the almost like this way to show you just how huge. Anybody remember this? This starving little kid, and the vulture was this toy ready to, to eat him. And um, the journalist at one point was, was, was finally asked, so what did you do? And he said nothing. I think there was some conflict, and he wasn't sure, like, I, I don't remember all this. I, you know, he was on a job assignment, and blah, 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 blah. Anyways, he did nothing. So he was, he was chastised by, like, the global community. I don't know what his employer did, and National Geographic is fine with him. Um, but that picture went viral um, because everybody could resonate with the injustice. Like, how could you not give? Like, the 25,000 that you don't know about and they're not in front of you, I mean, you can kind of, like, forget about it, I guess, right? But when, when one of them is in front of you, you have a what? You have an obligation, right? That's, that's what even the community at large seems to say. Well, well God's saying that. God's saying that that's what justice is. And the second word is righteous, okay? Uh, the, the root letters are the, the S-D-Q. Um, uh, so sedekah, or there's a few different ways, whether it's a noun or a verb or whatever. But uh, Or crisis is interesting. That's the Greek word, right? Um, conformity to right or expected standard, okay? So conformity to right. So how do you conform to right? Well, you have to get yourself into place, right? Which means you're doing something, so you're back to the justice word. Which is why both terms, if you skip down to the bottom here, this point right here, when used together, there are hendiades, if that's how you say that. Um, I haven't known for like 15 years, <laughs> if I ever properly say that right. Um, it's a single complex idea expressed through the use of two words. Uh, so when you say um, room and board, that's what that is. If you say law and order, that's what that is. It's two words. They do have independent meanings, but they have an overlap, and when they're used together, it's just referring to one thing. Right? Does that make sense? So, uh, justice and righteous. All right? And we're going to see in a minute how those are used together in the scriptures. So, both terms are relational, particularly as related to Israel and their covenant with Yahweh. All right? And they occur more than a thousand times in scripture. So, that's pretty hefty number, right? A thousand? So, these are terms that God cares dearly about. And we're going to see how dearly he cares about them in just a moment. So, um, C.H. Wright, Christopher Wright, has, uh, he's a prolific writer. Okay, excellent. Okay, read anything you pick out. But he has um, a book on um, ethics from the Old Testament, all right? And so the, the three or four Ds that I have up here are, are from his book, as are most of the scripture references. Um, well, I mean, they're from the Bible, but you know what I mean. So he's one of the guys that has some really good stuff on justice and ethics. So justice and righteousness displayed, okay? How has God displayed this? In other words... How do you know that's what this is really about, Kevin? So I'm not going to go through a bunch of scriptures on this one. I am for some of these other ones. But for the display of it, um, there's two illustrations. The Exodus, okay, God showed his, his justice and his righteousness, okay, 
and these words are used in it, okay, related to the Exodus, he showed that in his actions. He just didn't talk about it, okay? He heard the cry, and then he did something about it. He showed. He did. Um, so that's God displaying them. How about the Ten Commandments? Well, the Ten Commandments, the, the first four are basically about your relationship with God, right? Vertical. And the next six are your relationship with each other. That's horizontal, right? So, well, that's the way it's being displayed also. How do you show justice and righteousness to your neighbors? You don't steal their goat or their lawnmower, right? How do you how do you um, show to your neighbor? Well, you don't move the boundaries for them. What are those? You don't get your crew out in the middle of the night to go move your neighbor's fence ten feet over so you can steal ten feet of the land. That's what boundaries don't care about. All right, that's what it means. A little more difficult, I think, today, although maybe not. Um, I mean, moving the whole fence that's a little more difficult than the boundaries for my land. But that's the point of it. Um, yeah, you you don't steal, you don't lie, you don't bear false witness. Um, you don't say like the the two yo-yos did about Jesus as they lied about him, right? With the intention of having harm done to him. That's not loving your neighbor, right? Remember on the the screen that showed all the crimes that these um, pagan nations had done. Almost every one, well, all the pagan nations. They said they don't love their neighbors, right? In fact, they they wish evil upon people. So. Ten Commandments are about that, and you can sum them up as love God and love your neighbor, right? All right, what about demanded, all right? Well, we haven't gotten to Micah yet with our, our prophets, and of course, we don't want to spoil the whole book, but, you know, kind of the thesis of the book would be Micah 6.8, which probably many of you know. Um, he has told you, men, what is good and what does the Lord require, only to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Somebody have some, another translation for me? Justly, love, faithfulness, and walk humbly. And that could be justice, and love, kindness. Okay. So kindness, faithfulness. Okay, that's actually probably, I didn't double check this, that's probably chesed. That's probably the, the love word. The covenant love, covenant faithfulness. That's probably what that is. So, um, if so, so you, you would have the covenant faithfulness of God connected with doing justice. Okay? But, in addition to that, okay, so that's the relational aspect, okay? We're dealing with relationship here because we're in a relationship with God. But it says he's told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. So what does God require of you? To do justice. Like, it's not optional. It's required. That's what we are to do and to walk humbly, which is the opposite of pride, which the fat cows of Bethlehem and Amos are not walking in humility. They're being prideful and arrogant, right? So... Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Now, Isaiah has a ton. In fact, there's a whole unpacking. It's on the next screen, probably. So we're going to come back to Isaiah. Um, but Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, talks about the same idea. I'll sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The, the one I love had a vineyard. On a fertile hill, he broke up the soil, he cleared it with stones, he planted it with the finest vines, he built a tower in the middle of it, and he even hewed out a wine press. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem, 
and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Um, why then, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I tell you what, I'm, what I am about to do to my vineyard. I will remove her hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. So it says in the middle of that that um, he's saying, what, what more could I have done? To say, you judge. You judge between me. So the, the vineyard is a, uh, a metaphor. Um, I actually think that it is a, a key metaphor of God. We often think about Jesus in the church before. It's probably a top two metaphor in the church that God speaks. Um, picked up by Jesus. He tells multiple about vineyards and owners, etc. Um, looking down, continuing in verse 7, though, he looked for justice, but saw injustice. He looked for righteousness, but heard cries of wretchedness. So here you go. You have your, your aspects that we're talking about. Now, here's here's one for you. Genesis 18, 19. Okay? Remember, we're looking at the fact God actually demands this out of us. Okay? It's not optional. It's demanded. Genesis 18. This is Abraham and God. Okay? So Genesis 18. This is dealing with... Uh, Sarah discussion with Abraham. So in verse 18, Abraham is to become a great powerful nation. God says, should I hide what I'm going to do? He's going to become a great powerful nation. All the nations will be blessed up to verse 19. For chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So God chose Abraham so that he would command his children and those come after him to do what is right and just. So that's the expectation. How are you supposed to live your life? In a way that is right and just. Um, so you got the point, right? We, I mean, we can read the rest. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, um, they're all prophets except Genesis. So it's not the prophets. This is going back to Genesis 18, to God's covenant with Abraham. That's part of what we're supposed to go along. You could also look at some aspects in the historical books, okay? When Nathan the prophet goes to David, all right, and confronts him about what he had done to Uriah and with Bathsheba. Okay? He's doing. He's trying to correct. He's doing justice. When Elijah goes to Ahab about Naboth's vineyard that he stole, same thing. Um, and then you have the rest of these passages as well, all which, which treat this, this topic. Justice and righteousness delivered. Okay, So the Davidic expectation. Okay, In 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, There's this idea, okay? So 2 Samuel 8 comes obviously after 2 Samuel 7. And what's in 2 Samuel 7? 2 Samuel 7 is the Davidic covenant with God, okay? So the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, says, So David reigned over all of Israel, administering justice and righteousness to all of his people. Now, this is important because this picks up on the Davidic expectation that gets unfolded in Scripture. The, the, the prophets and the people of Israel were looking for a new David. Because David's dead and buried. We're looking for the new David. And what kind of king is the new David going to be? The kind of king the new David is going to be is one who administers justice and righteousness to all of his people. So then we go back to Isaiah. And we begin to unfold or unpack 
what God reveals through the prophet Isaiah as it connects to the Messiah in Isaiah 9-7. The dominion will be vast, its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Flipping over to chapter 11, verses 4 to 7. He will judge the poor, the poor, righteously, and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. So you got parallelism, right? Justice and righteousness are parallel aspects. The poor and the oppressed are parallel aspects. Chapter 42, verse 1. Now we're moving into the servant songs. You remember talking about that in the book of Isaiah? The servant songs that God himself is going to actually come. He will be the servant. Of course, that turns out to be Jesus. 42.1. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit in him. He will bring justice to the nations. 32. Not sure why that one's out of order. 32.15-17. Until the spirit from heaven is poured out on us, then the desert will become an orchard. The orchard will seem like a forest. The justice will inhabit the wilderness, and the righteousness will dwell in the orchard. The result of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quiet confidence forever. And then my people will dwell in a peaceful place and in safe and restful dwellings. Again, justice and righteousness. The Psalms also speak of it. You go to Psalm 96, verse 10 to 13. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them exult. Then all the trees in the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with his faithfulness. So the whole creation is going to resound with joy. Why? Because the king is finally coming. The, the king who is prophesied in Isaiah, the, the Messiah, the servant, all of these, the new Davidic king. And then 98, 7 to 9. 98, 7 to 9. Let the sea and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it, resound. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains shout together for joy before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world righteously and the people fairly. So, it's pretty clear that God not only demands it, he, he's demonstrated it, he's going to deliver it. Um, so what's up with his people? Why is, I mean, you could say, well, we know why Edom doesn't. We know why the Ammonites don't. Like, they don't know God. Okay. What about Israel and Judah? Yeah, they don't know God either. All right? And that's the problem. All right? They don't know the God. The Mount Malachi that starts out with that, like an ox knows its owner, but my people don't know me. You don't even know me. What did he say uh, last week? Okay. You are no longer my people, right? You are not my people. But at the end of the book, he said, what? You are my people, right? You will be my people. So the sentence against Israel, uh, chapter 7 through chapter 9. The rickety are ruined, the proud are rejected, oppression is reversed, and injustice is reversed. Okay, uses the image, the metaphor of a plumb line. I'm measuring you, okay? Is the wall straight? If the wall's not straight, the house is going to fall down, okay? You're not straight. The Egyptian builders used this plumb line about 3,000 years ago. 
You said that string was a a way to connect, you know? It doesn't go straight. Well, your law's not straight. Israel is not straight. Israel is messed up. And because of that, God says, He's coming. He's coming in glory. So in this section, chapter 7, 1 to 9, 10, uh, there's five visions. There's even see if I have them here. That's not. So let me tell you about the five visions. And then I'll look at the serpent with the tree. You have the locust in Amos 7, 1 to 3. Okay? Thank you, Mount, on the PowerPoint. The locust in Palestine were uncontrollable and considered an act of God. Amos saw in them the threat of God's punishment, and by pleading for the land, he was able to convince God to relent. Amos 7, 1 to 3, the locust. The second vision is the great fire that devours the land in 7, 4 to 6. Some see this as a famine or a drought. Again, Amos pleads with God and he relents. The plumb line, which we just talked about, 7, 7 to 9, the doom of the house of Jeroboam is announced. Amos doesn't plead any further. In Amos 8, 1 to 3, you have the basket of summer fruits. Prophets frequently convey their message by puns not intended to be humorous. From the similarity of the words summer and end in the Hebrew language, God teaches Amos that the end is at hand. The end has come for my people, Amos 8, 2. And the fifth one, the Lord's standard, Amos 9, 1 and following. The command is given to smite the sanctuary and destroy the sinful people of the land. The point of the last vision is that when God finally sends the Assyrians to overthrow Israel, there will be no way for sinners to escape punishment, no matter how hard they try. So, these five visions that come towards the end of this. So, the sentence decreed in Amos. There's going to be exile, elimination of Gentile kings, destruction, calamity, uh, malfunctioning of nature, and all right? He's hitting all the aspects. <coughs> the visions... Agricultural disaster, showers of fire, Israel measured against the plumb line, and the Lord will destroy. So we already looked at the visions. There's five of them, actually, that I just gave to you. So the epilogue is chapter 9, verse 11 to 15. In chapter 9, 11 to 15, there's actually a little bit of, of hope, which shouldn't surprise you. Here's how do the prophets end. And with a Restore the fallen wood to David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, rebuild it in the days of old, so they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations that are called by my name. So they're going to rise up again, and they're going to possess what is currently their enemy. Now this is interesting that they're going to possess Eden, because our next book, which we'll talk about after a quick break, is Obadiah, which is about the Edomites. He will do this. Hear this. Plowman will overtake the reaper, the one who treads grapes with ease. The mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with it. What's he saying? Oh, you're going to have abundance, prosperity, land flowing with milk and honey. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild the papyri orchards. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their produce. I will plant them on their land, and they will never again direct the land I have given them. Yahweh, their God. 
So it is a great example. Here's a restoration. Here's a rebuilding. A God will bring us back. A God brings us forth. A God will do that. And so as we as we look at this, and we understand the historical situation, we understand what was going on, and we see all the horrendous aspects that, that were occurring, and we're going to talk specifically more about some of them related to Edom in the next hour in the book of Obadiah. But seeing injustice and righteousness, the, the catchphrase that's being used now is like social justice. Um, it needs to be rooted in Scripture. It needs to be rooted in an understanding of God's kingdom and God's plan, of compassion based on that, and of God's covenant loyalty. But we need to not just be prophetic voices for God's kingdom and what God's going to do. God's goal for all of these kingdoms is that they would know the name of God. Of all these kingdoms that he would show that uh, and this, there's a judgment that has to be meted out but then there's a, a compassionate aspect that these these places will, will rise up. Um, if you remember from our our study of the, uh, the Magus report that even the, the pagan Gentile nations Gazer one day, and they are going to rise up and do what? Worship God along with the Jews, right? How do we be part of that? How do we deal with race issues, immigration issues, poverty issues, homeless issues? Like, those are all the issues of, of Amos, right? Why, why were people being oppressed? Because the fat house of Bashan were keeping it upon themselves, right? So, do you think that God cares that Americans use the bulk of the resources of the world? How much are we? 360 million people or something out of 7.5 billion? Like, what percent is that? So how come we use the majority of the resources? Aren't we the fat cows? So what would God be saying to us? So I think that, like, this, this is where We know what justice means. It means we've got to do something. It means we got to put feet to it. It means we've got to put our money where our mouth is. It means we got to do something. So you might start small, and small is a great place to start. start. That's where everybody starts, usually, right? Um, and then see where, where God takes you from there. But we, we need to be prophetic voices in a messed up, crazy, chaotic world that doesn't know Yahweh, that has churches filled with people that think they're right with God, and they have a right with God, but they're not right with God, and therefore they don't like they have Christ in them, they need to repent of that, um, you know, because that's what it is, I see your wife this week, um, has to, you know, I'm a Christian, and then you see all this, and that's an excuse out of like, what, like, what, how are you, so, alright, that's for Amos.